So how, how is your week this week? Like when you stop and think about your faith, your walk with God, and how does, how's your week going? And the reason I ask, for several reasons, but one of the reasons why I ask is simple. Um, I'm thinking of a bunch of Egyptians. They've been going along their daily lives. They've been worshiping all their gods. They've been doing all the things they're supposed to do according to their culture. Um, quite a few of them have interactions with these Hebrews that live over in this particular section of, of their country. And they, they know that these people insist that there was only one God, but they're just going along normal lives. And suddenly, things begin to happen. One day they go to get water and it's all turned into blood. One day, there's frogs just everywhere. And so if you can imagine the conversation that's happening with the Egyptians as they're discussing this, because you have, you have the claims being made that there is one true God, and you have Moses interacting with Pharaoh, but not, this is not like a, a movie or even a televised event. Like the, you know, you don't have the News 9 crew down filming the exchange between Moses and Pharaoh. And so whatever is coming out is at very best a report of someone who was there. And probably you're hearing a second or third hand report where someone says, I was down. Um, this is what the, um, you know, the, uh, the court jester was, was down and he's kind of not busy right now. And this is what he was telling me he saw happen. Or, you know, I, I don't know, you know, somebody from within Pharaoh's court is now reporting. And so they're hearing these different things. And so as, as an Egyptian, at some point, we know God wants them to actually question their faith in all of these other idols that they have, and he wants them to know that there is one true God in heaven. That's what God wants for them. If you've ever in your life gone from a place, like I went from where we were Amish growing up, and then we dramatically changed our faith practice, our I mean, you could say we've changed our religion. We, we are still, we were within the realm of Christianity, but we'd come to an understanding that was way more biblical and, and clearer, and we finally had peace with God. And so when you go through that sort of a shift, and then you remember, what were the days like before? When we were Amish, we were going about our daily lives. We were convinced that what we were doing was right. We, we knew that there were people that seemed to be attacking us, uh, but we were going to do the right thing no matter what. Well... Then one day we changed and we switched to where a whole bunch of things that used to be absolutely wrong were now in the light of scripture, not sins, and we were able to do them. So then if you remember those days when you were going along with your life and, and then suddenly you had to re-examine everything that you thought you knew or believed, what do you do when you are again now going through your life and everything's comfortable, everything's going fine, and then someone else comes along and says, well, actually, let me tell you what the real truth is. And so I have met a few individuals who have actually spent quite a bit of their lives going along with one set of beliefs until someone challenges them, and they're like, you're right, this is a problem, and they will bail, and they will jump to the next thing, and then they'll be part of this group for a while until someone challenges them, and then they'll jump and, and, and go to a different one. 
And so you can go, you can keep doing this right now. You could do this your entire life. You could go from one belief system to the next belief system to the next one. And so what does it take to challenge you to re-examine your faith and to say, am I actually walking with the one true God? Because that's what I say I'm doing. And so this is, I'm, I'm imagining all the Egyptians and that there might be a few who are walking with the God of the, 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 the God of the Hebrews, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There might be some that have been listening to their neighbors. But the real challenge, I think, in looking at these, looking at the, the neighbors that are here, is I am not sure if you could live next door to the Hebrews in Egypt during this season and get a full picture of who God is. And so we're, we're at a very strange time with, if you're trying to be a follower of God and follow, Christ, uh, follow the creator God in Egypt, we're in a strange time of not, I don't know how much you actually know. Because you have a few things, so in your past, you know that there was a time, some 40 years ago, if you know history, you know that there was a point in time when there was, um, when historically speaking, the Pharaoh had made a rule and said you have to kill these Hebrew children and some of them had not complied. So this is partly what you know, but you don't know a whole lot of everything else. And so I'm just thinking in terms of what do I actually know as a person in Egypt? What do I really know about the creator God? If I'm a Hebrew in Egypt, how much do I know of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Is everybody being taught? Because later we find Moses giving the instruction saying, make sure your children know these things. And I don't know if everyone knew this. Like when everyone went out to the Red Sea, did they know the whole account? Did they, or did they just kind of like know Abraham, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, or did they really know how God had met with Abraham? And so this is a question I'm asking because as we're looking at this week's plagues, um, God is wanting people to come to know him with what he's doing. And so the, this next, this first section, we're gonna read, be reading out of Exodus chapter eight. So Exodus chapter 8, we're going to start reading in verse 16 as we get to the third plague. So Pharaoh has just hardened his heart as soon as there was relief. And in verse 16 it says, So the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land so that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Now if I was reading this book for the very first time, I would have to say, Are you kidding me? Lice? Okay, I mean, I guess it's a plague. I don't really want lice, that's disgusting, but okay. So strike the dust of the land so that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Verse 17, and they did so, for Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the dust of the earth, and it became lice on man and beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Now, in verse 18, the magicians so worked with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there were no, so there were lice on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them just as the Lord had said. 
So I think for today, I just want you to consider just that section. I was wondering, I was thinking about going further with the flies and everything, but I think I just want to stop right here and just look at this one thing. It says, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. So I did a few searches, just, just English word searches, not going deep into the Hebrew or the, I just did some, some English word searches to see in other times, how many times is the word lice, like are lice mentioned in the Bible? And this is about the only time. It's really not that much. Flies, you find a few other times. Um, lice, not that much. And so I thought, well, that's interesting. And so then I also looked up the, the passage where it says, the finger of God. This is the finger of God. Like, is this a saying? Like, how often is this in the scripture? And again, it is used in the Old Testament. It's used right here, the finger of God. It is used again when uh, Moses gets the tablets of the law and it was written, that were written by the finger of God. And then that's it. Um, whether or not it mentions God's hands, it mentions God's hand again, but to talk about God's finger doing something, I, I, I thought it was interesting that it was so rare. And so the New Testament has one listing of the finger of God. And so as I was I've been contemplating these lice for quite a while uh, because I knew we were getting to them and trying to understand, you know, we come along, the magicians see the water turn to blood and they do something that convinces Pharaoh that they have the power. And we had the discussion, was that demonic or did they do sleight of hand? Then the frogs came along and the magicians did something that convinced Pharaoh and those watching that they could also do the same thing. Again, is this sleight of hand or is this demonic. Well, they get to lice. And so, so this is my personal take on all of this, is that it is possible that with the demonic involvement of what they were doing, that they could have done something with water to turn it into something that looked like blood. Frogs are really easy to use for sleight of hand because they will jump. And so as soon as you need them to hop, they will hop out of there. You can keep them in a tight spot until it's time to go. You can release them. So I can see the frogs being sleight of hand. I can also see that the lice being a, and, and, this is, and this is my reasoning behind this, taking something that looks like water and corrupting it to blood, that's corruption. The enemy is able to corrupt things. He's not able to create anything new. Satan doesn't have the creative power of God. He only has corruption power. And so if you look at all the work that the enemy does, it's corruption power. It's not creative power. And so when it came to the frogs, it makes, you know, and so we see that the enemy comes um, also with lots of lies. He comes killing, stealing, destroying, but he comes with lots of lies. He's the father of lies is what Jesus said. And so when we have the enemy telling lies, well, that would be within the realm of sleight of hand. And so I see a frog not being corrupted to show up, so it would almost need to be deception is happening. And so we have, uh, we have the first thing that happened with the, with the throwing down of the rod turning into snakes. Okay, that's pretty amazing. I don't know what that was. I know that some of the films that have been made make it look like sleight of hand as well. But there's something going on where um, the rod is turning into a snake. Now, because of the serpent and the dragon nature that Satan takes on in his appearances to mankind, it is possible 
that he would have done something, that something demonic could have happened there. So that could have been demonic power. But what's amazing about it is Aaron's, and, and so whether, and this is the part, whether it's slate of hand, slate of hand, or whether it's actually, um, they're turning them in uh, into actual snakes. Aaron's, whatever snakes are out there, whether it's some that they just went and captured and brought in and were like, did something fancy to make them show up, Aaron's rod Aaron's snake eats those snakes. Plural. Now, I have seen snakes eat one thing, and usually they go and curl up somewhere and then, like, sleep. Except at our house, this, we, were, uh, we had such an infestation of snakes coming after our chickens um, and our rats. And so we sometimes would have to deal with several dozen snakes in the course of that many days and would just be like every day there'd be another and they were this is in texas and we were close to several other chicken farms so they had plenty of food around and so these would be like huge rat snakes i mean just huge old snakes you know and so you'd you'd be going in to gather the eggs and there's a snake eating your eggs you'd be and so at our house it would turn into this thing where um we would run get a camera first and try to film or take pictures of the snake eating whatever it was eating, and then we would kill it. Unless it was killing, trying to kill a chicken or something, then we're like, no, you do not get our chicken, okay? Um, and so we, we have in the Graber um, file somewhere a picture of a rat snake, eat, or a video of a rat snake eating a rat. Um, and so, yeah, that's just is part of my life experience. So I'm thinking about these serpents eating something, and I'm like, it is not normal for, like, it is one thing for a snake to eat one other snake. That does happen in the wild. But for a snake to eat multiple snakes, that is supernatural. And so you see that. And so I'm looking at that going, well, that was already pretty amazing. But the magicians and Pharaoh are just carrying on business as usual. And so if they actually turned their staffs into serpents and Moses and Aaron's snake actually ate their snake, that meant they lost their staff. So they had to go get a new, new staff, right? So it could have really impacted them. Now, if they didn't eat their staff, they had to like sheepishly go and get their staff out from wherever they hid it. How do you still have your staff? I thought you turned into a snake, right? So the, so the magicians are having to deal with some kind of publicity problems regardless. So now we come along, and, and the frogs come. So with the frogs, the magicians don't have too much skin in the game. So if they're able to like actually um, do, you do some trick that makes it look like they're making frogs, that's great. We come to the thing with the lice, and this is what fascinated me about this, is why do magicians give up by lice? Because they're so small. They're so tiny. They're just... And, and part of it is, I think, that you can't tell a flea when to jump. Like, you know, a frog, you can make him jump. And so if you're trying to create an infestation of, you, like they could have, so I'm, this is my imagination. I'm thinking, okay, one magician tells his, you know, his apprentice, go catch me all the lice you can. So he brings all these lice and they put them all in a spot and they put sand over it. And then he comes out and goes, and he wants the lice to jump out and go. And if they don't obey, see, if you put a frog in a tight spot and you, reveal, you know, open it, he'll probably jump. You put the lice in the same place and they're like, we're kind of comfortable here, thank you very much. And so, I don't know, but there's something about this that we get to this third plague, but it's the, I think it's the, this is the fourth miracle that they're having to deal with. The fourth thing that the magicians are trying to do, and they just run out. And I thought, 
Is it not amazing that God would use something so ordinary, so demeaning, really, so low, so disgusting, something so small to stump the magicians? But then I, just in thinking about this, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about myself. Like, how many times has it been something really, really small that made me say, wow, there is a God in heaven and he loves me. And so, you know, Reagan, you're trying to buy a car. And I was thinking about all the times I've been buying cars at different times. And, you know, in 2016, I wanted to buy a Suburban. And I had looked around a bit enough to know that they were cheaper in Texas for a four-wheel drive Suburban than they were here. So I had gone online, gotten a list of at one point, I had a list of like eight Suburbans that were available for sale in the general, somewhere between Houston and Austin, kind of an Austin area. I flew into the Austin airport. My dad picked me up, and we went out, and we went to the first Suburban on the list, which was not far from the airport. And I look at it, and it's like, it's got 300 plus thousand miles on it, and it just looks like it. The only thing it has going for it, like the paint's kind of falling off, the seats are just torn to shreds. The only thing it has going for it is has a ranch hand uh, bumper guard, like the whole bumper replacement bumper, which is something I really want. And so I'm like, do I pay for the bumper? You know, like this thing's nice, but everything else is bad. Like, I mean, it was just, it gave you the feeling that if you pushed it too hard, it might just collapse. You know, it was just, it was just very well worn out on a ranch. So I'm like, okay, take that one off the list. Well then, from the time the day before when I had last communicated with everyone to the, this day that I'm now on the ground, suddenly like four of them just evaporate. Like they're either like, I'm sorry, we sold it. No, we decided not to sell it. Like there was a white one that I was very interested in. It was newer than all the rest and it was gone. And so we're going down the list looking at each Suburban that's left and in the, by the, by when it comes right down to it, I get to look at three Suburbans. And one of those three had the cloth seats that Stacy wanted because she was like, she will not freeze herself on leather seats and, and then cook herself on leather seats in the summer. She doesn't want, she didn't, she was not, she's just not impressed with leather. You can talk to her about this. She prefers a cloth seat. So it had cloth seats that actually still looked decent. It had less than 200,000 miles, which was fine for me. I was like, I can probably get 500 out of this thing. So we'll see if I make it there or not. I'm halfway there. Um, but it had all the little things. It didn't have the bumper. And I just remember when we, the grill guard, I was like, well, I can buy that later if I need to. And I, I still haven't ever, but I keep every so often I go look at the prices of them and I'm like, maybe I could buy, and then I don't follow through. So, but the interesting thing about it was I remember that day driving back out to my parents' place in preparation for then driving up here the next, you know, through the night, uh, well, the next day. And so I'm driving and I just started thanking the Lord because when so many of the cars evaporated right out from underneath me, I realized I could have come down here and I could have potentially stayed here for a week or more driving all over South Texas trying to find a car. And, and, and the only reason, like, this is one of those things that the guy didn't tell me, like he was trying to pull a fast one, but he sold the car for me at, at a decent price because it had a problem. But I was able to fix those problems. One of the problems was like there was a four-wheel drive issue. It needed a washer. And so I, I changed one little washer and everything was fine. And so, so it was things like that where he thought he pulled a fast one on me. 
But I saw it as the, thing, as the finger of God. I saw it as the hand of God. God was protecting something for me so that I could have it. And so there was a time back in 2001, I believe it was, I wanted a pickup truck so bad. Um, and so I had had a little 1985 Nissan Sentra with the standard transmission and it was awesome, except I lived in Texas and it had no air conditioning. And so it was not awesome, but it was awesome. It got, I mean, I could get 40 miles per gallon on that thing when I was going across the Dakotas or other places like that. It was awesome. And I, and I, and I enjoyed driving it, but it was, it was just a small little, like nothing special to look at. I really preferred the larger vehicles um, and I wanted a pickup. And so this was, in a, this, was, this was a series of events that happened. So first of all, there's a young man and his grandfather buys him a new pickup. And I believe his grandfather probably paid $7,000 for this pickup at the time, maybe more. Well, he gets it in his mind that this is the fastest, baddest pickup in the county. So he's doing things with it he ought not to be doing. And so he's drag racing in pastures and other things. He's doing all kinds of stuff. Well, he hits a stump, takes out the, the cross member that holds up the, the transmission. So now it's parked at his house. And so it's just sitting there. Like it's still working in every other thing. It just needs one cross member, $30 at the junkyard. That's what it needs, right? But it's sitting there. You can't, you, like it'll have to be taken. Well, okay, it also needs new brakes because he destroyed those when he was drag racing and stuff. Um, and it, it just needs a tune-up. It needs a lot of other, little, you know, a lot of things. But it's sitting there. And so the young man decides he would... Rather than fix the truck, he'd like to buy a saddle, and the saddle cost $600, so he's willing to sell his truck for $600. So I bought the pickup for $600. Now, I ended up spending almost immediately about $1,200 on parts because I went through it and made all the brakes work again. I did put new tires, you know, it was just, but God provided for me a vehicle that was a truck that I wanted, and it was, I loved it, and I drove it for quite a number of years until um, it got totaled when someone the guy on drugs ran in front of me and there was nothing I could do. So I, I was thinking about that, the multiple times when I'm buying vehicles and I'm, I'm, I'm looking, like, it was so bad with this guy that I went to his grandpa and said, listen, I wanna buy the truck from him, but like I feel like, and he's like, he looked at me and he said, look, I gave him a truck once he can do it with it, whatever he wants to. But I gave him a truck one time. And he's like, kind of like, go ahead. You know, let him deal with the problem and the repercussions. And so that was a truck that I drove all over the United States. I drove it into Mexico. I went all over with that thing. It was a standard transmission V6. And I had so much fun with it. And there's so many times in that truck and in my, like all of my cars, when I think about all my travels, there's so many times when I'm praying for something. And, and when you're praying on the road and you're traveling, it can be something as, uh, with the, uh, the magnitude of Lord, I have $14 left to my name and I've still got 1,200 miles to go or whatever. It can be like that and God provides. Or it can be like, you know what I'd really like right now? I would really like a McDouble. And this actually happens to me, okay? So don't laugh at me too much. And, 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 and then there's a McDonald's, and you're like, thank you, Lord. And so you pull off, you know? So, so you can have like very, very small prayer requests or really large ones. But what I discovered is in my relationship with God, whether it's a flea or 
a frog or as we get on later to the livestock, no matter what size it is, when you see the finger of God in your life, it strengthens your faith. And you say, wow, thank you, Lord. And it doesn't matter if it's tiny. If it was something that you care about that you're working on, it makes a big deal when God actually does it. And, and, I, and I, I know that for myself, that I forget this. And so like this is completely, this seems like somewhat out of context, but you know, that, that first 1985 Nissan Sentra that I drove, the way my family got that car was, we had a Suburban as a family, and my mom said, I've seen these little hatchback cars around, and some of them are blue, and I'd really like to have one of those. And dad was like, I don't know. And she said, well, but you know, when you and I have to go on those long, you know, because the, they would go someplace, we could take the little car and say the big car would save on gas. And so dad was like, well, okay, if we find one, we'll, we'll look into it, right? Well, so that was, that was one week. So they talked about it and said, well, how much money do we have? And so they had decided they had, and I forget what it was. It was like we had a, less than $1,000, maybe $800 that we had saved up. Uh, that they had, they were like, we could buy a car with this much right now. So how much time we wait, we'll have more money. But right now, this moment that we've decided we need a second car, um, we have $800. So my dad, being very much like me in certain ways, and having a wife who's like, I would like a little blue car with a hatchback. And he's like, I don't want to go look for a little blue car with a hatchback. I don't know what, I don't actually know what all was going on, right? But my mom is like, Lord, I'd really like to have one of these. So we go after church and stop at the grocery store, and right next to us pulls in a little blue hatchback with a for sale sign in the back. And so mom is like, thank you, Lord. And she says, see, there it is. God brought it. And so then they call the number, and it's like it's, it's $100 or $200 more than what they currently have in their safe. Like, it's less than $1,000 for this car. And this car is only like... I mean, it's less than 10 years old at the time, I think. I'm not even sure. No, it's maybe right at 10. So it's, it's, it's an older car, for, but it doesn't have very many miles on it. It's still in great condition. And so it's just, just out of the price range. So dad says, see, we don't have enough money for it. Let's go home. So we go home. So next Sunday, mom still wants this car. So she's still praying for it. We stop at the same grocery store. Mom is like quietly praying, Lord. If you want us to have the car, could you bring it back? So it drives in. And on the for sale sign, the original price is marked out. And our number is on there. Like the amount that we have is on that, that for sale sign. And so now, I didn't fully appreciate it then, but I sure appreciate it now that I'm married and have stuff. Like my dad had no options. <laughs> he had to buy. The, the car. And it wasn't that mom was actually planning on driving it. She was just planning on riding in it. I mean, she later did learn how to drive it in other cars, but like at the time, she didn't even have a driver's license. And so God provides for us. And so in that instance, when I think about it, like that was my mom insisting, you know, just she really didn't have a whole lot of options. She wasn't going to go shopping for cars. She couldn't drive. She didn't have. So she just prayed. And so I think about this for myself. How many times am I faced with something that it's not necessarily world-changing, but it's necessary 
And I can ask the Lord for that. And I may not get it immediately. It may take, like in mom's case, another week, you know. Um, it might happen over time. Like I think of myself at different times, I would really, really want different vehicles. And then it got to the point when we were married and I could actually have whatever vehicles I wanted if I wanted to buy them and take care of them. And suddenly, like, I was kind of content having a Suburban and a minivan. I, I really am. I, I like having a third vehicle just in case something happens or we want to loan one out. One day, I'd like to have one of those, you know, uh, one of the, a Jeep Wrangler of some kind. So we're, we're still talking about that. When the children all graduate out of our house, we will, uh, Stacy and I will start tooling around with a little Jeep or something. I don't know. We'll see how it goes by then. But so these, the, the reason I bring up cars is because they're, one, they're a little bit necessary, but they're also not that necessary. Like sometimes you've got to have a car for the mission that God has sent you on. But then other times we want things about our cars that are not necessary. Like we, if you think of, uh, this is what I, okay, so my mind works a little bit ADHD sometimes, but remember in Fiddler on the Roof, when the song, If I Were a Rich Man, and Tevye is asking the question in the song, he says, would it ruin some vast eternal plan if I were a rich man? Like, that's his question. Now, I sometimes I'm like, Lord, would it ruin something, like some huge plan if I could just find a standard transmission suburban? Like, they're so hard to find. Like, I, when I was last looking, there was a, I found one in the whole United States. There was one 1989 standard transmission suburban. I'm like, come on, come on. Somebody in the late 90s, give me just one more. Like, I know they made trucks in those. Somebody should have ordered one. It should be out there somewhere. Can I have it? Like, it has nothing to do, really, with the kingdom of heaven. But it has a lot to do with me as a child of God. And so there are times when we, our relationship with God is that is just, it's every day. It's what we're doing. And so I don't want to say that we shouldn't ever pray for these little things because it is in these tiny little details of our lives that we sometimes find God loving us and taking care of us. And so I want, that was one part of me thinking about life. So I went to cars, there's computers, um, phones, Remember the story I had about on, on Halloween when I went to find a phone? Do y'all remember that? It was a couple of years ago. We were already meeting here in this building, and I had broken the, the, my phone, and it was the Motorola X Pure Edition. And so at the time, I really wanted that phone. It was one of the better camera phones that was available, but it was, it was not new enough that I could find a really good discount on them in most places. So I had to pay... At most, I was expecting to pay, I feel like 300 or $400 was what it was supposed to cost, I forget, used. And so I'm looking for one, and I finally, I actually find one. So I'm thinking about buying one from Best Buy. I'm looking at where all I can buy these, and I find the one downtown, some, I think it was Craigslist or something. And so I start the communication with him, and I just, I, I want to buy, I want to get this phone. And Stacy's like, why don't you just get a, like literally a junker phone, you know, and use it. And I'm like, because I want the camera that's on that one, because I want, you know, I had desires. Could I have lived without it? Yes, I could have lived without it, but I really wanted it. And so I, I remember the guy said, I'm sorry, I won't be home until tonight about eight o'clock. 
Well, it turns out, like, this was literally Halloween. And so, after dark on Halloween, I'm driving downtown to meet a guy I've never met at some place I've never been to buy a phone. And it's not until I'm actually driving and watching all the things happening around me that I'm thinking, this is kind of sketchy, you know? <laughs> and so I, I remember going in, find the building. It's one of those apartment complexes. I'm in the office. I text him. I'm here. He comes down with the phone. He, I had done, you know, I was going to do my due diligence, so I was checking the IMEI, IMEI numbers and stuff with her phone. I had her phone with me. I was doing all of this. And so I'm like, finally, yep, I want this phone. And he's like, okay, I want to give it to you. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I, you know, that's my bum ear. <laughs> that's what I felt like. <laughs> what did you say? And he said, I just, I just want to give it to you. And so it turned out that it was a guy who had been in, in Catholic youth ministry for years. And so with Craigslist, you, you use your own email often to communicate. And so my signature had my websites on it. So he had gone through, discovered I was a pastor, and he just wanted to give me a phone. And so on Halloween evening, because I persisted and kept going, God gave me a phone. And I, I really felt the love of God with that. It was such an obvious, like, this is for you. And it was a blessing. And so I was very grateful for that. So I'm grateful for those times. Now, the point that it, I didn't mention was I went down to Best Buy. I looked at the phone and said, what am I doing? Just buy the phone already. I've got the money. It's only, it was $100 more at Best Buy than it was the whatever thing, because they had a, an open box one or whatever. And then I thought, no, I should pray about this. And so at Best Buy, I said, Lord, I've been thinking about this and I'm ready to just make a decision and, make, and deal with it. Like why, why continue to wait? I'm using precious time. Next week we were leaving on a trip. And so I was like, I just, I just need to do this. But as I prayed, I felt very strongly saying, don't buy this phone, go back and wait for the, the Craigslist thing. And I'm like, but it might not come through in time. But that was what I sensed God telling me in response to my prayer, wait. So I waited, I went back home. And then a little bit later, he emailed me back and contact was made. And next thing you know, I'm there at eight o'clock at night picking up a phone and it turns into a free phone. That was really nice. And so I think about that is how many times, because, because I know that in my own life, I, I hate the time of indecision where I'm like, should I go this way or should I go this way? I don't quite know. And so if I can just make a decision, I can get past that. Once I've made the decision and plunked down the money and taken the receipt, for me, then buyer's remorse is done. I can't go anymore. Like I have my remorse right before I buy it. Stacy is able to have hers before and after and in the middle. And so, but I can just make the decision and then move on and say, okay, I'm finished. No more, no more of this going between two things. I'm just done. And yet it is God who wants me to seek him in the small things. But there's something deeper here, and this is why when we're looking at what was happening in Egypt and we see the plague of the lice, like, like none of the accounts, that, none of the things I've been sharing are exact um, applications where you say, oh yes, that obviously makes sense. Anyone would apply it that way. I just look at a lice as, lice are very small. And so what are the small details of my life? And will the small details of my life, will I choose to serve God because of those? 
because the Egyptians were literally going season by season which god they would worship. And yet they had a few gods that were all the time. And they had all of this going back and forth. And if you tried to truly worship all the gods, it would take a significant amount of time. And now something's happening in their land that's saying there is one true God. And look, the lice have proved this. There's one true God. He is the creator God. Which if you think about it, a lice, if you just, if you take these things and you put them under a, you take a louse and you put it underneath a magnifying glass and you, you figure out how can this thing live? And you look at everything about it. It is a testament to the creator God that he could do this thing. It's a pest. I hate the thing. But how is it that God could make something so small? It's amazing. It is a definite testimony to the creator God. But there's one other thing, because the only other time, besides now and with the tablets, the Ten Commandments, the only other time that we have this phrase, the finger of God, is actually over in Luke 11:20, And I just want to actually read a section around Luke, uh, from that, around that verse. So over in Luke, chapter 11, And I wanted to start in verse 14. Luke 11:14. And this feels so disconnected, but it's connected by one phrase to our account of the plague of lice. So in verse 14, Luke 11:14, it says, "He was casting out a demon." And it was mute. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke and the multitudes marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others testing him sought from him a sign from heaven. Verse 17, but he knowing their thoughts said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Jesus is dealing with a demonic oppression in this man's life. He's actually mute because of this demonic oppression. Jesus rescues him, and there are others who claim to love God. The same God who said that he would, uh, who's through Isaiah had said, go preach um, freedom to the captives. And so, uh, and, and the, I'm, I'm losing words this morning. Um, if they knew the law and the prophets, 
they would have known that the creator God whom they served wants to rescue people. They would have known that. They see someone rescuing someone, and instead of saying, oh, you must be aligned with God, they immediately say, you must be aligned with Beelzebub. Now, there are several pieces to this that I want to apply. In Egypt, you had a lot of different gods. And by their own admission, these gods fought against each other. In fact, when the sun god would set in the west and would go underneath the earth, their mythology and their understanding of their gods said that there were other gods and goddesses down below that were fighting against this one and he had to fight his way back up to rise the next morning. And so their own admission was that their gods were divided and fought against each other, which is symbolic because when Jesus said a house divided, it's against itself and he's talking about demonology and this is, this is the thing. When you look at Satan, and you look at the demons and the hordes there, there is not a sense of unity. There is not a sense of something um, where they are all together saying, ah, yes, we belong to each other, and we are united for the same call. They will destroy. If you sign up for Satanism over here, and someone else signs up for some other religion over there, and if the enemy can get you two to destroy each other, he is happy. He doesn't care about bringing his people and protecting his people. He wants to destroy his people. And so Jesus is making a point here. He says, if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. And he ends by saying, he who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. So we sometimes say, we have this phrase where we say the, the, the friend of my enemy is my enemy or some, a few of those kind of things, right? What we don't think about, and this is where I'm wanting to make the application today. If I am trusting God by his power to do something in one area, but then in another area of my life, I'm expecting some other power, whether it is my own power, my own authority, my own ability, whether it is someone else, or in some cases, even another religion altogether. If I'm expecting something good to come from here and from over here, and then I'm, I'm trying to bring these all together, I am going to end up being a house divided. And this goes now, now making the application with my cars and with all the other things I was talking about, my phone and all this stuff. If I come to the creator God of the universe and I submit my life to him and I say I'm following the Lord Christ but then when I need something I go to some other place somewhere else to get the help that I need what I'm literally doing is I'm being like the Egyptians saying well we have one God for this thing, for fertility. We have another God for rain. We have a different God for the, the crops. We have a different, and, and so we have different gods for everything, and they're not united. They're actually fighting against each other. And so this is what I am doing in my believer's life as a Christian. When I 
if I put God as my source and say he is everything to me and then be, before, so anytime, anywhere, whether I'm at work, whether I'm at church, whether I'm at home, whether I'm on vacation, whether I'm on a hike, whether I'm, no matter what I'm doing, if, my, if I need something, my first point goes to say, Lord, you are my source. You are my king. I belong to you. And I start there with him. He might direct me. He might provide through what seems like random circumstances. He might provide through someone down at 8 o'clock on Halloween Eve. He might provide many different ways, but it will be God who provides. And so instead of me trying to worship all the different gods in my life, because in America, I do believe that we can call it idolatry and we are worshiping different gods and we're not one united front when we come to our needs. We're like, well, this is how you meet that need. We have a philosophy of how we deal with money. We have a philosophy of how we deal with housing. We have a philosophy of how we deal with food. And we have a philosophy for all of these different pieces. And for some people, all of that is brought under the subjection of Jesus Christ and their life is one. They're serving one God. But for others, they're trying different things. So I'm thinking about the, the magicians and their demonology back in Egypt. And so they are looking at each thing that Moses and Aaron are doing going, oh, 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 hold on. I think if we do it this way, we might be able to. And so they come to the little lice, the louse, the individual, you know, it was not just one. It was many, many of them. And they look at all of them. And they're like, we can't actually do that. And they run out. They didn't have another option for it. If they would have had an option in fact, they probably did try what they knew. And so I just want to challenge us on this and say, what is the finger of God in our life? No matter whether it's small or whether it's large, we want to make sure that we are not a house divided, that we are not looking to one side for one thing and so over here for something else, that I'm not looking to myself to take care of certain parts of my problems. Now, I have to be very clear on this because you are responsible for you. I'm responsible for me. I cannot fix your problems. You cannot fix mine. I am responsible for me. What that means, though, is that anytime something shows up in my life, I, number one, first step, go and submit myself to Christ. I have to submit myself to God. I cannot submit you to God. You cannot submit me to God. My first step is to submit to God. Now, at that point, he might give me instruction and wisdom and understanding, and I have to go do a whole bunch of things, and he will reward me based on how well I do those things. But he is still the rewarder. So this goes back to the, the statement that says, uh, you must believe that God is and that he is a rewarder of those. And so we're looking at God. He is the creator, but he is also the, he is the source. He rewards us. This is who God is. And so when we see the, the Egyptians at this moment saying, this is the finger of God, what they're basically saying is, we have looked through all of our gods, and we have not yet found any one of them that is able to do anything about making lice. But this God can make lice. This is the finger of God. And so at this point, the magicians kind of stop. They, they don't, they're not continuing on. Like you don't see magicians out trying to kill the firstborn. You don't see it happening later on. They're done. They were taken out by, a li by lice. All right? So this is, whew, they're gone. And so the finger of God 
is visible in something so small, so tiny, so ordinary, but it reflects the might and the power of the creator God. And it shows us, and this is why when, if you're, when we're sick, when we are, all of these other things that happen in our life, when we're hungry, we need to start with our prayer to God. It doesn't mean that we don't go to doctors, that we don't go to a food store, that we don't go, uh, that we don't get counsel from other people about our finances, about other things, but it means that first and foremost, we start by asking God. Because you see, on the day when I was praying for that phone, I didn't pray for a phone and God was like, hold on, and then suddenly the angel appeared and gave it to me right there. He used the systems that were already in place to answer that prayer and to provide for me. But I walked away saying, God provided a phone for me. And so this is important because I recognize the finger of God in that. Why? Because I was looking to God as my source. If you are looking to something else as your source, you may very well have success and you will give credit to something else as being the answer. But when you are praying and seeking the Lord in everything, you will be not a house divided against itself, not a kingdom divided against itself, but all of you, the entirety of your being will be submitted to Christ and he becomes your answer, he becomes your solution, he becomes your source, he becomes your captain, he becomes the one who gives you directions, he is your shepherd that walks with you, he is the, in, in everything, he is all things, and in him consist all things, and by him they are held together. And so this is important for us to think about. And so that was my thoughts on this, the plague of the lice, is that when they recognize the finger of God, they were left with a decision to make. If this is the finger of God, then why do I practice these dark arts? If this is the finger of God, why do I make an offering to this God? If this is the finger of God, why am I still serving all of these other gods? And it's a good question. And I would ask it of us. If we have seen the finger of God in our life, if we have experienced the power of God through his word in our life, why would we look anywhere else for any other power if he is the one who's not only created the world, but created us and rescued us because of Jesus Christ, empowered us through his Holy Spirit, why would we look somewhere else? And I think the simple answer is that we live in a world that has many little, small G gods set up in all kinds of places, all clamoring. And they all promise something, but they all, it's, it's like um, we were at a truck stop yesterday on our way out to do our wood cutting, and this guy comes up to me, and he gives me a line that I've heard before and I've helped before, but he just says, hey, I'm from, and I'm trying to go, and I need gas. I'm like, why don't you pull up? I'll give you some gas. So I'm giving him gas. While I'm doing the gas, the window rolls down. Someone says something in a different language that I don't understand, and suddenly he starts a whole nother story. 
the way he starts the story is he takes off a golden necklace, what looks golden, and grabs a bracelet and he he hands it to me like you know and I, you know, out of reflex you kind of take it because you he like gives you something and so you kind of grab it. And then he's telling me that he needs money. He wants cash for these things. And I've had this happen before where someone will give you something and your first thought is, hey, they're giving me something. But they're not. They're wanting to require something of you. And so at this point, the story was breaking down fast. Um, I have multiple times bought gas for people that I think was 100% legitimate and was a good thing, and I've watched them get back out on the highway and keep going the direction they were going. But yesterday, I kind of feel like I threw money away um, helping because I don't, with what happened next, it felt like they were, to me, they felt like the professionals who are trying to get you know, something else. And I had to work really hard to give that back to him because, and this is, and to me it was just, it's an illustration. There's a lot of forces in the world that will try to give you something. And the moment you receive it, they say, now what I want from you is this. It is a corruption of the way God interacts with us. God redeemed us. God rescued us. And then because he rescued us out of grateful heart, we serve him with the rest of our lives, with our whole beings. And so the enemy says, aha, I see God doing that. Here's a counterfeit of this. I'm going to enslave you. And so I, the enemy will use many sources to say, here, here is something. And we say, oh, I need that thing. But what's the difference here? The first step when we have a need is to approach our creator God. He is our source. And here's the fascinating thing about God is when you meet God in his people, through his people, there's often a unity in us, a, a oneness of purpose in us. So if we show up and there is a need with a third brother, and I'll be like, well, here, I can help, and someone else, like, I can help too, and we will help, and we will bless someone and send them off, and we're not looking for something in return. Why? Because we weren't trying to control that person or get something back. We were there was a unity in the children of God where we're working together. And so occasionally within missions or other churches or things, you will find a not unity. And what you can be sure of whenever you find a lack of unity is that somebody in this mix somewhere is looking for something not from God. They're expecting to receive something or they're invested in something and it's not from God. And so it's very important for us to see what is the one thing because when you see the hand of God in someone else's life, it inspires you to seek the face of God in your own life. When you, when, when you share what God is doing, now, and this is, this is a real challenge because there are times when someone will share something and you'll be like, oh, that is so unrealistic, that would never happen. Um, like, you know, my mom praying for a car. I've actually never gotten a car that way. Um, and I don't know if anyone else has either. But like, it is a real thing. And it has many, many times caused me to say, Lord, if you can provide a little blue hatchback car for my mom, then you can also do this. 
And it's a good thing to be reminded of what God has done in other people's lives. And it's good for us to remind ourselves we have one God, one source, and he is able. And in fact, the finger of God, even though it's not mentioned much in the Bible, is all over the Bible. We see the fingerprints of God and the power of God is such that it only takes a finger of his to do something that is powerful and life-changing for us. And so I still don't know why God chose lice as the plague that would completely confound the magicians, but I'm pretty impressed that he could do it that way. That he could take something so small and make the magician say, yeah, that's God. Like, I would understand it if it would have been lightning that struck the palace or something, and, and everywhere that Aaron could just point and there was lightning. Okay, I could get them going, oh, okay, we can't do that. But lice? And yet God did it. And so what I wanted to take away is what I've just shared with us, is that I want my life to be one, complete, not divided against itself, not having many idols set up that I have to serve this one and then serve that one. I want it to be one, a whole unit, 100% pointed toward the creator God. Let's pray. Father, you can take very small things and do very mighty things. And we know this, Lord. We've seen it before. You took five loaves, two fish, and you fed so many people. You've taken small things and done powerful things with them time and time again. And so I'm asking you for us, as a fellowship and as individuals and as families, Lord, we want to be 100% focused on you not trying to cast out demons by the prince of demons, not trying to use sleight of hand to make something happen. We want to look to you, and we want to expect you by the power, by your power, to answer our prayers. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Father, would you make us one, first as individuals, whole and complete, facing you, and then as a, as a fellowship, make us one. Give us that heart after you. That we're not going to receive the false promises of the gods of this world and then get stuck trying to serve them. But that we will literally only serve you. And that we will look to you for everything. And that no matter what channel you use to provide for us, we will give you glory for it. Father, thank you for loving us. And thank you for showing us the finger of God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.